Good morning. God is so good. He is so, so good. And he's such an orchestrator. Part of this message is about God's invisible hand in our life. You don't actually see his hand, but you see the effects. I love the fact that he is always in and in the midst of us. Sometimes people struggle with worship. Sometimes it's the 30 minutes you get through so you can get to the preaching part. (laughs) And God says, I'm in your midst. I'm here for you to experience. I can't make you experience me. You have to enter in on purpose. This morning's message is called Yahweh Sabaoth. I've never heard anyone ever minister on Yahweh Sabaoth. I think I spent a lot of years mispronouncing it as Yahweh Sabbath. <laughs> it looks kind of like that, you know. In the King James, in the NIV, you'll see it as Lord of Hosts. And so we don't recognize the name behind the description. And it actually has the connotation of God being our defender. So that's what I would want to talk to you about this morning is how God reveals himself as our defender, as the Lord of hosts. Now, the other names that I've ministered on, most of them were a lot easier to study out. Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh Yireh, only shows up once. You only have to study the context once to find out what he's trying to say. Same thing with Yahweh Rapha, the Lord is healing. Study in the context. Shows up once. You know how many times this shows up in the Word? over 1,300 times. (laughs) And you know what? I don't like my entire Christian life ever stopped to say, what is God trying to show me about himself when he is referred to as the Lord of hosts? And yet, it is throughout most of the Old Testament. It does not start to show up, though, until Samuel. So all the Revelation first five books in Joshua, God wasn't referred to this way. He was referred to as Yahweh, Elohim, but he was never referred to as the Lord of hosts until the book of Samuel. So there was way too many instances to try to study them all out. (laughs) So it's like, okay, Lord, I need you to show me what it is you want us to see in this name. What I began to look at is, it is that invisible hand. It is him in the midst of everything. You see, the Lord of hosts means a large amount of beings gathered together whether they be humans or angels, especially organized for war. The people groups of that time would worship the sun, the moon, and the stars. So when the Israelites say, no, Yahweh is the Lord of hosts, he was saying Yahweh is above the sun, the moon, and the stars. He is more powerful than any other god. That was their connotation. Because it has this connotation of of an army. Of course, God's army is not ones we have on this earth, but angelic armies. And so, for an Israelite, when you say Lord of hosts, you're saying, one, the power above all powers, who has an army ready to go to war on my behalf. Now that's an awesome picture. (laughs) I need to have this picture of the Lord in my life, that he is the God above all powers, who has an army, ready to go to war on my behalf. He is my defender. What does it mean to defend? 
I have found over the years, a lot of times we think we know things, and we find out we know a lot less than we thought we knew. <laughs> when I first started studying the Word, I didn't have any study materials. All I had was a dictionary. And I found out very quickly, with just an ordinary dictionary, the Word of God can come alive like nothing else because it says so much more than you think it says. And that's true with the word defend. I'm going to show you four different definitions from the Webster's 1828 Dictionary. The first one says this, to drive from, to thrust back, hence to deny, to repel a demand, charge, or accusation, to oppose, to resist, the effect of which is to maintain one's own claims to either truth or right. So we have a picture that we can apply to the spiritual realm, first and foremost. <laughs> Jesus is Yahweh, Sabaoth. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is Yahweh, Sabaoth. And he says he is ready to go to war on my behalf. Okay. Who is bringing the accusation? Who do I need to be defended from? Who needs to be driven back, thrust back, repelled their charges, their accusations? Who does that? Well, of course, that would be Satan. So Jesus is the one who stands in my defense. He's going to defend me, really, to myself, but also against the enemy's charges. Jesus is always going to defend our right standing with the Father against the enemy in our behalf. But he doesn't have to convince the enemy. Satan already knows we're righteous. Satan already knows he has no power. Satan already knows he's been defeated. But he also knows his only weapon is deception. To trick us into thinking that we are condemned. That we stand accused. So he's going to defend us to us. He's going to try to convince us of who we are. He's not trying to convince the enemy. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation is an adverse sentence, an unfavorable determination based on our performance. That's what condemnation is. It says, I have behaved in a certain way, done a certain thing, thought a certain thing, and based on that action, there is an unfavorable sentence. God is not handing out unfavorable sentences. Who is? Truth is, we are. <laughs> Satan is. We receive from the enemy the condemnation. He knows we're righteous, but he wants us to be convinced that we're not. 1 John 3.20 says this, If our heart condemn us, an adverse, unfavorable determination, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. What is he saying here? First of all, it tells us your heart will condemn you. It isn't just Satan. And sometimes he's the easiest one to get rid of. Because all we got to know is the truth and we have our authority and we can say, take a walk. The hardest thing I think for Christians is when condemnation comes from ourselves. So Jesus is my defender. He's the one trying to convince my heart that I really am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The second definition for defend is this, to drive back a foe or danger, to repel from anything which assails or annoys, to protect by opposition or resistance, to support or maintain, to prevent from being injured or destroyed. This is part of defend. 
when we say God is my defender, he's also my protector. Jesus is always his invisible hand, if you will. His army of angels, if you will, are in the process of driving back foes, dangers, repelling things which assail in order to protect us from opposition and resistance. The angels and his presence support us and maintain us and to prevent us from being injured or destroyed. That is always happening. You know how you know that? You're sitting here today. Because if Satan had his way, none of us would be sitting here today. We are the evidence that God is in our life. The fact that we are here, that we are preserved. John 10.10 says this, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's our defender. To defend us against all the powers of the enemy and to repel anything that would come against us and try to steal from us. 1 John 3, 8 says this, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. All of them. (laughs) All of them. To take away all power of the enemy, so that we can walk in the authority given to us in Christ Jesus. Jesus is our defender, but he works from the inside of us. He also works on the outside of us. When I was looking at all these scriptures about the Lord of hosts, and how he orchestrates nations. How does God orchestrate nations? He doesn't do it by sovereignty. That's a Calvinistic concept, that God is in control of everything. No, our God is bigger than that. He doesn't have to control people like puppets in order to accomplish his will in the earth. He's bigger than that. He's in and in the midst of everything. He can take failure and bring out glory. He can take defeat and bring out triumph. God doesn't have to control people to get things done. Now, if we let him be in control, he'll get a lot more done a lot faster. (laughs) Because that was his purpose from the beginning. We should rule and reign with him. That's what he wants for us. One of the part of the concept of being my defender is, is number three, is to vindicate. To defend means to vindicate. Vindicate means to assert to uphold, to maintain uninjured by force or argument, to defend our cause, to defend our rights and our privileges, and to defend our reputation. This is key right here. To defend our reputation. God does this both inwardly and outwardly. Romans 8.33 says this, Who shall bring an accusation against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The elect is always God's covenant people. Old Testament or New Testament, God's elect are those who are in covenant with God. Basically, he's saying, who is dumb enough? (laughs) Who is dumb enough to bring an accusation against God's covenant people? Why? Because it is God who has already declared them innocent. It is God who justifies. So in light of that, who is dumb enough? Satan? And sometimes, us. (laughs) But Jesus is my defender, and he vindicates me to myself and also before others. Years ago, I was in a a holiness church, and I did something scandalous. I took a job where I worked on Sunday. (laughs) Now, we laugh at that. I was a board member. I was a Sunday school teacher. I was the 
bus ministry person. I was the steward who served communion. I had a whole list of things I was doing, and I had the audacity to work on the Sabbath? Oh my gosh, she's backslidden and going to hell. <laughs> Someone in the church, because they came only on Sunday morning, and they were in all those other ministries, went to the pastor and said, I don't think this person should be on the board. I don't think they're qualified. Now, I didn't know this. Now, I knew it was scandalous. I knew there were going to be lots of people who didn't understand and who wouldn't believe God actually told me to do that. <laughs> My pastor vindicated me. He says, let's see. You're here two hours a week. Let's see how many hours she's here a week. And he started to tell him, she does this, and she does this, and she does this, and she does this. Let's see. She's here ten times more than you. Who deserves, quote unquote, to be on the board? Who's qualified? Now, I didn't ask him to do that. But God will do that for you. There are going to be times when people will slander you. It's better that you don't know. <laughs> it's better that you don't know. But it happens. God, Jesus is our defender. Because sometimes, there are those times when you do know. And you, you want to say something. You want to defend yourself. Jesus is our defender. He is able to fight our battles for us. Number four, to secure against attacks or evil, to fortify against danger or violence, to set obstacles to the approach of anything that can annoy. This is one of my favorite ones because this is where you really see the invisible hand of God. <laughs> to secure against attacks or evil, to fortify against danger or violence, to set obstacles to the approach of anything that can annoy. We think of things that are, are annoying as little things. But anything can be an annoyance. <laughs> it doesn't have to be small. God is able <laughs> to set obstacles in front of them. Anything that would want to hurt us. Well, I want to read you part of an article that has to do with the attacks on 9-11. There were so many stories that came out afterwards about this invisible hand of God. The power that is above all powers. That God in his all-powerfulness can work in and through anything to get us where we need to be, to protect us. Lorraine Wallace was one of those people who routinely arrived at work 15 to 30 minutes early. But on September 11, 2001, the 20-year-old felt sick and was late for her job as finance manager at the Landmark Education. The office was located on the 15th floor of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. She was quoted as saying, the funny thing is, that day everyone in my office was either running late or sick. Fifteen people worked there and every one of them was not there, except one person who made it out okay, and one that was just entering the building was evacuated. Literally, Everyone just either missed the train, was off that day, or was sick. It was really weird. Our manager always wants people to be on time. I'm very lucky. No. <laughs> There's a very powerful God who is above every other power. And he is able to orchestrate things. He can make you late so that you miss that accident. Sometimes those things that annoy us is God throwing something in the way saying, I'm protecting you. <laughs> you don't know. We don't know what we've been saved from. 
just this past week, we went to see the church. It was sold before we got there, but... (laughs) But on the way, Pastor Steve and Heather came upon an accident where they had just happened. One person lost their life. But what if they had been five minutes ahead of that game? What if they hadn't stopped the Taco Bell? See, that's what happens. We are so led. God's hand is so at work in our life. If we will stop and observe that it's there and recognize that it's there, even if we can't see it, yes, it is an invisible hand, but it's still there. And that's when, when all through the scripture, when he says, when he talks about the Lord of hosts, that is his invisible hand orchestrating things that we don't even know he's doing until all of a sudden we come upon these kinds of things where we go, praise God, I was late. How many angels were sent out that morning to turn off alarm clocks? We think so many things that just happened by coincidence. No, God is at work trying to reveal himself, even through his invisible hand, because he is the defender. He has an army of angels ready to minister to the heirs of salvation. This is what Jesus, as our defender, does. He sends obstacles in front of things that could harm or attack us. The angel armies must be very busy orchestrating things in our lives. Even this morning. We can't see the angels this morning, but we know they're there. And that should give us great comfort that the God who has power above all power and has an army waiting to be let loose on my behalf (laughs) should give us courage, should give us faith, should give us comfort. That he is my defender, he is my protector, he is orchestrating things even if I cannot see them. Now, do things happen that are outside God's will? Absolutely. People dying prematurely, not God's will. Sin, not God's will. But God is so big, he is not limited by sin. He is not limited by evil. He overcomes those things, overcome evil with good. The story we're going to look at quickly here this morning is the story of Hannah in the Old Testament. This is the first book where the term, the Lord of hosts, shows up. And it shows up in the first chapter of Samuel. Starting with verse 4. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and all her sons and daughters. Elkanah was a Levite. He was of the Levitical priesthood. This was a godly man. Okay, that's important to remember in this story. He is a godly man. He was probably at one of the feasts that they were required to go up for. He had to go up and sacrifice and bring offerings. And part of the offering was a fellowship offering where the animal you sacrificed was roasted and you got to eat it (laughs) and have fellowship. (laughs) We're going to have one of those. (laughs) So that's the scenario. They're at the tabernacle. They're participating in this fellowship offering with the Lord. And Elkanah, as the head of the household, is divvying up the portions. He has two wives, not God's idea, but he has two wives. (laughs) And the first wife, Peninnah, has children, sons and daughters. But he has another wife, Hannah, and she has no children. Verse 5. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Let me tell you right here, right now, God does not do that. God does not do that. Okay? Why does it say that then? Because that's how they understood it. Because they know that he's Lord of hosts, the power above all power, 
then they had that sovereignty kind of concept. They didn't know about Satan. They knew about the demonic realm. They didn't have any power or authority. All they could do was stay in terms of the covenant and try to live under the blessing. So when things like that happened, they couldn't say, that's the devil attacking you, fight back. They didn't have any power or authority to do that. So what they understood is whatever happened must be God's will. It's not true. <laughs> but that's how they understood it. And he goes on. But he gave her a double portion. This is a good husband trying to fix his wife. <laughs> that's what this is. <laughs> I love you. I know you're brokenhearted. <laughs> Have more food. <laughs> <laughs> Let me go buy you some ice cream. <laughs> when we were first married, I was upset about something, and my husband came to minister to me. And about five minutes into his ministry, I said, Look, I want you to listen. I don't want you to fix me. <laughs> you can't fix me. But he wanted to. <laughs> this is Elkanah. He wants to fix his wife. And so he's displaying in front of God and in front of the other wife, you are greatly loved. You are dear to me. And it says in verse 6, and her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it went on year by year. This went on for years. That even though her husband was trying to help her and honor her, it only made her feel the pain of her loss even more. It was open recognition. You are without children. <laughs> but I still love you. <laughs> it was meant to comfort, but it probably didn't. And her rival used it, this in particular, to say, that's what you get because you're not good enough. Because that is what they thought of women in those days. It goes on and says, And as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her, and therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? He didn't know. He didn't get it. You know why? He had children. He knew that she felt reproached. He knew she felt humiliated. But he did not know the sorrow that was in her heart because it wasn't the loss he himself had experienced. And so he says, am I not more to you than ten sons? In other words, aren't I enough for you? How many do you know a spouse does not replace a child? <laughs> I am reminded of a, a line in a movie where one of the main characters is dealing with infertility. And she says to her husband, how is it that I can miss somebody so much that I have never met? The desire of her heart, the picture of her heart, the imagination of her heart was to hold a child, to have her own babies. She knew they were there somewhere, but she had never met them. God has designed women to want babies. <laughs> and in that society, you weren't only designed to create babies, you were called to be fruitful and multiply. And if you didn't, you were considered a reproach. You must be cursed. You must be in sin. And so often today, even in the church, that's the kind of attitude the church takes when somebody is dealing with something that they haven't been able to overcome. It must be your fault. You must be in sin. What are you doing wrong? Why is God doing this to you? That is all a lie. 
that is condemnation. That's exactly what that is. That is all condemnation. You are not good enough. You are condemned. You are under a sentence. It's all condemnation. Now, obviously, Hannah was a smart woman because she did not answer that question. <laughs> In verse 9 it says, And after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. And Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. When I was reading through this and studying this name, I was like, Lord, where are you in it? You see, you can study the word and get all of the information. I had this message all planned out. I'm going to do this, this, and this. And I looked at the other scholars, and they said, yeah, teach it just like this. And I said, okay, God, that is really boring. <laughs> I can do that, but it's just information. Show me where you are in this. And when I got to this part of the scripture, I thought, what were her accusers? One was her husband. Even though he loved her, he was a godly man. You're of the Levitical priesthood. That's like the pastor, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and his wife can't get pregnant. <laughs> okay, pastor, what are you doing wrong? The condemnation, the accusations start flying. So he's probably under reproach too. The other wife is definitely not helping. Her community, her society, not helping. In her community though, God himself was the condemner. That's how they saw it. God is mad at you. Now, if you're a good Christian, quote-unquote, <laughs> and you feel like God is mad at you, what do you do? Everything you can think of! <laughs> you look everywhere. You try to clean up everything. I want to be blessed of God. I will read my Bible more. I will pray and fast. I will help the needy and the poor. God, what do I got to do to get you to bless me? How many times do you think she went to God and said, look, whatever it is, I'm willing to give it up. <laughs> whatever it is, I'm willing to do. Take away my reproach. Be my defender. Help me. I don't know what I'm doing wrong. You see, her accusation wasn't about what she did or didn't do. Her accusation was, you're a failure. You're a failure as a wife. You're a failure as a woman. How deep would that hurt? It's bad enough to not be a good wife, but to not be a good woman? <laughs> to not be a good daughter of God? She felt like she was utterly and completely a failure. And that was her condemnation. God is funny how he sets us up. That unseen hand of God at work in our life. I fell into this trap just this past week. You see, after I finished ministering last week, the message was really big, and I knew that coming in, and I knew God was going to have to do some editing to get it to fit in <laughs> timeline, and I didn't feel like I did a good job. And so I went home, and I'm like, gosh, Lord, I wish I had done better. I wish I had been more organized. I wish this. I wish... What am I doing? I'm counting myself a failure. You see, I recognize condemnation really easy if I sin. Because you know what? I almost never come under condemnation when I sin. Almost never. I know who I am in Christ. So when I sin, God just says, no, that's, that's not right. Oh, you're right, sorry. Wrong thinking, sorry. 
it's just little course corrections. I don't usually come under condemnation because I'm not out practicing sin. <laughs> but this was different. You see, in our society, society tells us, spouses can tell us, people in relationships can tell us, our performance, our job, our responsibilities can tell us, you failed. You feel that your marriage, you're divorced. Then they're done that. What if your children are not behaving properly? Oh, obviously your failure as a parent. What if your boss is mad at you? Obviously your failure at your job. Society, the world, the circumstances of life will always try to tell you who you are. That you're a failure. Your checkbook will try to tell you you're a failure. Is it true? No. And I did what all good Christians do when they come under condemnation. I'm really sorry, God. I'm really sorry. <laughs> How many times do I have to say I'm sorry before this horrible feeling goes away? <laughs> we try to repent our way out of a bad feeling. doesn't work. You know why? I'm trying to fix me. It's like me eating ice cream. That would be me trying to fix me. <laughs> that doesn't work either. So I was like, Lord, what is this? Why is this not going away? I know the truth. I know the truth. God talked to me. So he gave me scriptures all about his invisible hand. He says, I don't care how lousy you bring the word of God. If you bring the word of God, I can use it. <laughs> it is not about you. It is about the word. It is about the truth. It is about Christ in you. Because I can communicate to you no matter how badly you do it. <laughs> he can talk through donkeys. He can talk through me. And that's the important part. Then I saw God's invisible hand again. I went to work out. I'm better because I've got God's word that he's okay with what I brought forth. Okay, Lord. Because it was his word, and he confirmed his word, and I knew it was his word, and, and I had all the logical reasons not to be condemned, but I was judging me. So I went to the gym, and I have stuff on my phone, and I was going to listen to a message. Didn't really know what it was about, one of my favorite ministers, but it was all about coming under condemnation when you fail. Coincidence? I don't think so. It's that invisible hand of God that he is the power above all powers and he is able to meet me wherever I am and bring to me that which I need. He is able to put obstacles in the way of the enemy and obstacles in the way of anyone who would try to hurt me. I can believe that he will keep me and protect me and he will defend me even to myself. That he will stand and say, you are the righteousness of God. I am well pleased in you. You are beautiful to me. I don't care about your performance. I care about your heart. I care that you belong to me and that you love me. I care that you care. This invisible hand is so awesome. The truth is we can never change ourselves. That was what Hannah probably was trying to do. If I just work hard enough, if I just do the right thing long enough, it is that I can change me. It's a lie. Hannah could not produce the fruit of her womb. Hannah couldn't do it. We cannot produce the fruit of the Spirit. We cannot produce righteousness in our lives of ourselves by our effort. It all comes out of who we are. Colossians 3.18 says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I will never change myself by looking at myself. Never. I will never change myself by looking at my performance. Never. I can only change as I behold His glory. I can only change and produce the life of Christ in me as I look to Him. He is the one who produces the fruit. I'm just the branch. I can just hold my arms out. He does the fruit producing. But when we try to produce righteousness, I'm going to make myself right. No, you can't. It works in reverse. (laughs) It only frustrates you. It only brings you on the condemnation. So what does Hannah do? She goes aside to seek the Lord of hosts, the God who has power above all power. I think that day, because we don't know how many times, for how many years she cried out, for how many years she sought to, to fix herself, to make herself blessable. But this day, she stopped looking at herself. This day, she looked up. In verse 11 it says, And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts. This is the first time he is described that way. O Lord of hosts, the Lord who defends me. Did she need defending? Absolutely. No one was standing up for her. If you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. And as she continued to pray before the Lord, Eli, the priest that's there, observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore... Eli, as a good priest, (laughs) took her to be a drunken woman. (laughs) She can't get a break anywhere. (laughs) And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. And Hannah said, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. (laughs) I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. That's how she felt everybody saw her, because that's how she saw herself. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made of him. This is an important thing. As a priest, he had authority to speak into her life. She had just poured out her heart to the Lord. And he says to her, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition. Job 22, 28 says, you will also decree a thing, and it will be established for you, and light will shine on your ways. She was ready to receive. She was ready to receive because she had poured out, she had given up trying to fix herself and to make herself blessable. And this is what the priest says to her. Verse 18 says, And she said, Let your servant find favor or grace in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Everything changed that day. I love what she says, Let your servant find favor or grace in your eyes. Scholars say, Oh, it's her way of saying, Just please continue to pray for me. 
But that's not what I saw in it. What I saw in it was she was saying, something changed today. And the grace that I received, you're going to see it. It will bear fruit, and you're going to see it. Verse 19 says, They rose up early in the morning, and they worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. This was her way of saying, this girl has received favor. That was what her name meant. Her name meant favor and grace. And yet she walked around feeling completely unfavored and ungraced. She knew in her heart that Yahweh Sabaoth would vindicate her, and he did in a big way. And that others would see, others would see the grace that God gave her produce fruit in her life. It is God's grace in us that produces the fruit that we're looking for, the change that we're looking for. I heard a minister this morning say, there are lizards that you can cut their tail off and it grows back. (laughs) That's like the church. We're always trying to cut off the tail, cut off the sin, cut off the bad behavior. We're always trying to cut off that tail. You know how you stop that? You change the inside. As long as we keep trying to change things on the outside to produce an inward change, we're working it all backwards. If we want grace to produce in our life, we have to get grace on the inside for ourselves. We have to look to the one who is above all power and recognize that his angel armies are always working for us and that it doesn't matter if I fail. It doesn't matter if I fail. He's going to give me another opportunity. (laughs) He's going to give me another opportunity to try again. He just says, don't give up. He is able to perfect what he started in us. He is able to bring to completion his design and and for our life. All we have to do is quit trying to work it out ourselves and let him work it out in us. And we do that by looking up to the one, to the Lord of hosts, who has power above all power, and see in him that he has graced us in Jesus Christ. We are the graced. We are the favored. And the fruit is going to show up. Amen? Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your invisible hand. We thank you, Father God, that you are great at making lemonade out of lemons. That there is nothing we can do that you cannot turn for good. That there is nothing we can do to prevent you from blessing us and loving us and taking care of us. There is nothing we can do to stop you from favoring us. Except to condemn ourselves. When we condemn ourselves, it like clogs up your grace, not because you've changed, but because we've not looking in the right place. Father God, I thank you that you are greater than our hearts. That when our hearts condemn us, and they will from time to time, that you are able to show us the cross again. Again. That the blood of Jesus Christ alone is sufficient for every failure and every mistake and every sin, that the blood of Jesus Christ has forever settled the question that I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Father God, I ask that you would remind your children 
of your invisible hand, that your invisible care, that you are the God of all orchestration, that they are not left to their own devices. They don't have to work out their lives and their plans on their own. But as we look to you, you direct us. You provide for us. You take care of us. You defend us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.